Jesus loses his crowd. Gospel of John, chapter 6. Since John's gospel is selective, he does not record events in the life of Jesus that do not help him fulfill his purpose. Between the healing of the paralytic and John chapter 5 and the healing of the 5,000, you have many events taking place, some of which are mentioned in Luke 6, 1 through chapter 9, verse 10. Also in Mark 3, verses through chapter, Mark chapter 6. During this period, our Lord preached the Sermon on the Mount. And he gave the parables of the kingdom. The feeding of the 5,000 was a miracle of such magnitude that it is recorded in all four Gospels. A great multitude had been following Jesus They'd been following him for several days, listening to his teachings and beholding his miracles. Jesus had tried to get away, to rest. We all need to get away sometimes to rest. But the needs of the crowd pressed on him. See Mark chapter 6. Because of his compassion, he ministered to the multitude in three different ways. Jesus feeds the multitude in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. The problem, of course, was how to meet the, the needs of such a vast crowd of people. There were four solutions that were proposed. First, the disciples suggested that Jesus send the people away in Mark 6, verses 35 and 36. Get rid of the problem in Matthew 15, 23. But Jesus knew that the hungry people would faint on the way if somebody did not feed them. It was evening time, and that was no time for travel. The second solution came from Philip in response to our Lord's test question in John 6, 5. Raise enough money to buy food for the people. Philip counted the cost and decided they would need the equivalent of 200 days' wages. And even that would not provide bread enough to satisfy the hunger of all the men, women, and children. Too often we think that money is the answer to every need, and of course Jesus was simply testing the strength of Philip's faith. The the third solution came from Andrew, but he was not quite sure how that problem would be solved. He found a little boy who had a small lunch, two little fish, and five barley cakes. And once again, Andrew is busy bringing somebody to Jesus. See John 1, see John 12 also. We don't know how Andrew met this lad, but we're glad that he did because through Andrew, um, Andrew does not have a prominent place in the Gospels. He was apparently a, quote, people person who helped solve problems. The fourth solution came from our Lord, and it was the true solution. He took the little boy's lunch, and he blessed it. He broke it, and he handed it out to his disciples, and they fed the whole crowd. The miracle took place in the hands of the Savior, not in the hands of the disciples. 
Jesus multiplied the food. They only had the joyful privilege of passing it out. Not only were the people fed and satisfied, but the disciples salvaged 12 baskets of fragments for future use. The Lord wasted nothing. The practical lesson here is clear. Whenever there is a need, give all that you have to Jesus and let him do the rest. Begin with what you have, but be sure you give it all to him. That little lad is to be commended for sharing his whole lunch with Jesus, and his mother is to be commended for giving him something to give to Jesus. The gift of that little snack meant as much to Jesus as the the pouring out of the expensive ointment in John chapter 12. But did Jesus really perform a miracle? Perhaps the generosity of the boy only embarrassed the other people so that they they brought out their hidden lunches and they shared them all around. That's nonsense. Jesus knows the hearts of men. See John 2 verse 4 and John 6 verse 61 through 64 and verse 70 and he declared that the people were hungry surely he would have known of the existence of hidden food furthermore the people themselves declared that this was a miracle and even wanted to crown him king see John 6:14 through 16 Had this event been only the result of mass psychology, the crowd would not have responded that way. John would never have selected this as one of the signs if it were not an authentic miracle. It's significant that twice John mentioned the fact that Jesus gave thanks. John 6 verse 11 and also verse 23. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all state that Jesus looked up to the heaven when he gave thanks. By that act, he reminded the hungry people that God is the source of all good and needful gifts. This is a good lesson for us. Instead of complaining about what we do not have, we should give thanks and be giving thanks and continuing to give thanks to God for what we do have, and he will make it go further. Then in verses uh, 15 through 21, Jesus compelled the disciples to go get into the boat. Matthew 14, 22, and in Mark 6, 45. Because he knew they were in danger. The crowd was now aroused and, and there was a, a movement to make him king. Some of the disciples would have rejoiced at the opportunity to become famous and powerful. Judas would have become treasurer of the kingdom, and perhaps Peter would have named prime, been, been named prime minister. But this was not in the plan of God, and Jesus broke up the meeting immediately. Certainly, the Roman government would have stopped it, stopped, stepped in, had a movement begun. So, did Jesus know that a storm was coming? Of course he did. Then why did he deliberately send his friends into danger? Quite the opposite is true, actually. He was rescuing them from a greater danger, the danger of being swept along by a fanatical crowd. 
But there was another reason for that storm. The Lord has to balance our lives. Otherwise, we will become proud and then we could fall. Or we would fall, actually. Pride goes before a fall. The disciples had experienced great joy in being part of a thrilling miracle. Now they had to face a storm and learn to trust the Lord more. The feeding of the 5,000 was the lesson, but the storm was the examination after the lesson. You know, sometimes we are caught in a storm because we have disobeyed the Lord. Jonah is a good example of that. But sometimes the storm comes because we have obeyed the Lord. And when that happens, we can be sure that our Savior will pray for us, come to us, and deliver us. In writing the account of this event years later, perhaps John saw in it a picture of Christ and his church. Christ is in heaven interceding for us, but we are in the midst of the storms of life trying to reach the shore. One day he will come for us and we will reach the port of sa- the port safely. The storms all passed. Actually, there were several miracles involved in this event. Jesus walked on water, and so did Peter. See Matthew 14. Jesus stilled the storm, and instantly the boat was on the other shore. Of course, all of this happened at night so that only Jesus and his disciples knew what had occurred. Jesus had led his people into the green pastures in John verse. 10, chapter 6, verse 10, and now he brought them into the small, the, excuse me, the still waters. Psalms 23, verse 2. What a wonderful Savior he is. As you read the gospel records, note that our Lord was never impressed by the great crowds. He knew that their motives were not pure and that most of them followed him in order to watch his miracles of healing. Bread and fishes was Rome's formula for keeping the people happy. And people today are satisfied with that kind of diet. Give them food, give them entertainment, and they are happy. Rome set aside 93 days each year for public games at government expense. It was cheaper to entertain the crowds than to fight them or to jail them. We must never be deceived by the popularity of Jesus Christ among certain kinds of people today. Very few want him as Savior and Lord. Many want him only as healer or provider or the one who rescues them from problems that they've made for themselves. John chapter 5 verse 40 says, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Jesus said that. And then in verses 22 through 71, the purpose of the sign was that he might preach the sermon. Again, it was a mystery of grace and truth. John 1, verse 17, In grace our Lord fed the hungry people, 
but in truth he gave them the word of God. They wanted the food, but they did not want the truth. And in the end, most of them abandoned Jesus and refused to walk with him. He lost his crowd with one sermon. The next day began with a mystery. How did Jesus get to Capernaum? The crowd saw the disciples embark to go across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum. And then the men were lost in the storm. The crowd also saw Jesus leave the place and go by himself to a mountain. But the next morning, here were Jesus and his disciples together in Capernaum. Certainly he didn't walk around the lake, and there was no evidence that he had taken another boat. Other boats had arrived, no doubt driven in by the storm, but Jesus had not been in any of them. No doubt some of the people who had been fed simply went away to their homes, while others stayed to see what Jesus would do next. Our Lord's sermon probably began outdoors, and then the discussion moved into the synagogue in John chapter 6, verse 59. It would be impossible for a huge crowd to participate in the synagogue service, though the overflow could remain outside and hear what was being said. This, this sermon on, quote, the bread of life is actually a dialogue between Christ and the people, especially the religious leaders, the Jews. We see four responses of the crowd to the Lord Jesus in John 6 seeking in verses 22 through 40 seeking murmuring striving and departing seeking verses 22 through 40 the disciples may have been impressed that so many people stayed through a storm in order to seek their master but jesus was not impressed he knows the human heart he knew that the people originally followed him because of his miracles see verse 2 But now their motive was to get fed. Even if they were attracted only by the miracles, at least there was still a possibility they might be saved. After all, that is where Nicodemus started, right? John 3, verses 1 and 2. But now their interest had degenerated to the level of food. Jesus pointed out there are two kinds of food. There's food for the body, which is necessary, but not the most important. The food for the inner man, the spirit, which is essential. What the people need was not food, but life. And life is a gift. Food only sustains life, but Jesus gives, Jesus gives eternal life. It is a gift. The words of Isaiah come to mind from Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? The people picked up the word labor and misinterpreted it to mean they had to work for salvation. They completely missed the word give. Steeped in legalistic religion, they thought they had to do something quote, do something to merit eternal life. Jesus made it clear that only one, quote, work 
was necessary, and that was to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, to believe on the Savior. When a person believes on Christ, he is not performing a good work that earns him salvation. There is certainly no credit in believing, for it is what God does in response to our faith that is important. See Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10. The crowd began to seek Jesus Christ, but then started to seek a sign from him. As it says in 1 Corinthians, for the Jews require a sign. The rabbis taught that when Messiah came, he would duplicate the miracle of the manna. See Exodus 16. If Jesus was truly sent by God, then let him prove it by causing manna to fall from heaven. They wanted to, quote, see and believe. But faith that is based on signs alone and not on the truth of the word can lead a person astray. For even Satan is able to perform, quote, lying wonders. See 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 8 through 10. Note also John in chapter 2 and chapter 4, the quotation of John in chapter 6, verse 31, is from Psalms, a psalm that records the unbelief and rebellion of the nation of Israel. In his reply, our Lord sought to deepen the people's understanding of the truth. It was God, not Moses, who gave the manna. So they must take their eyes off Moses and focus them on God. Also, God gave the manna in the past, but the Father is now giving the true bread in the person of Jesus Christ. The past event is finished, but the present spiritual experience goes on. Then Jesus clearly identified what the bread is. He is the true living bread that came down from heaven. But he came not only for Israel, but for the whole world. And he came not just to sustain life, but to give life. Seven times in his sermon, our Lord referred to his, quote, coming down from heaven. A statement that declared him to be God. The Old Testament manna was but a type of the true bread, the Lord Jesus Christ. This dialogue began with the crowd seeking Christ and then seeking a sign. But listeners soon began to seek the true bread that Jesus talked about. However, like the woman of Samaria, they were not ready for salvation. See John 4, verse 15. She wanted the living water so she would not have to keep going to the well. The crowd wanted the bread so they would not have to toil to maintain life. People today still want Jesus Christ only for the benefits he is able to give. In his reply to their impetuous request, Jesus used two key words that often appear in, in this particular sermon, come and believe. To come to Jesus means to believe on him, and to believe on him means to come to him. Believing is not merely on or an intellectual thing, giving mental assent to some doctrine. No, it means to come to Christ and yield yourself to him.
At the close of his sermon, Jesus illustrated coming and and believing and speaking about eating and drinking. To come to Christ and believe on him means to receive him within, just as you receive food and drink within. John chapter 6 verse 35 contains the first of seven great quote I am statements recorded by John. Statements that are found nowhere else in the Gospels. God revealed himself to Moses by the name I am, meaning Jehovah. See Exodus 3 verse 14. God is the self-existent one who is and was and is to come. Revelations 1 verse 8. When Jesus used the name I am, he was definitely claiming to be God. John 6, 37 through 40 contains Jesus' explanation of the process of personal salvation. These are among the most profound words he ever spoke, and we cannot hope to plumb their depths completely. He explained that salvation involves both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. The Father gives men and women to the Son, but these men and women must come to Him, that is, believe on Him. He assured them that nobody who came to Him would ever be lost, but would be raised at the last day. Even death cannot rob us of salvation. From our human and limited perspective, we cannot see how divine sovereignty and human responsibility can work together. But from God's perspective, there's no conflict. When a church member asked Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled these two, he replied, I never try to reconcile friends. That was his remark. It's the Father's will that sinners be saved, 1 Timothy 2, 4, and 2 Peter 3, 9, and that those who trust Christ be secure in their salvation. Believers receive eternal life, and Jesus can never lose them. In verses 41 through 51, our Lord's statement, where he said in verse 38, for I came down from heaven, disturbed the religious leaders, for they knew it was a claim of deity. So they thought they knew Jesus, who he was, and where he came from. Jesus, of course, was the legal son of Joseph, but not his natural son, for he was born of a virgin. The leaders identified Jesus with Nazareth in Galilee not Bethlehem in Judea. And they thought that Joseph was his natural father. Had they investigated the matter, they would have learned who Jesus really is. Even in the days of Moses, the Jews were known for their murmuring. See Exodus 15 and Exodus 17. See Numbers 14. Perhaps the leaders and some of the crowd had now moved into the synagogue to continue the discussion. The main issue was, where did he come from? Five times Jesus used the phrase, quote, came down from heaven, but they would not accept it. 
Jesus further explained how the sinner can come to God. It is through the truth of the word. Verses 44 and 45. The Father draws the sinner by his word. Jesus quoted Isaiah 54, 13 to prove his point. And they shall all be taught of God. It is through the teaching of the word that God draws people to the Savior. The sinner hears, learns, and comes to the Father, or comes as the Father draws him. Comes to the Father as the Father draws him. I apologize. A mystery indeed, yes. A blessed reality. This was basically the same message he gave after he had healed the paralytic. In John chapter 5, the crowd wanted to see something, but their real need was to learn something. So it is by the word that we, quote, see God and receive the faith to come to Christ and trust him. Romans 10 verse 17. When Jesus called himself the living bread, he was not claiming to be exactly like the manna. He was claiming to be even greater. The manna only sustained life for the Jews, but Jesus gives life to the whole world. The Jews ate the daily manna, and eventually they died. And when you receive Jesus Christ within you, you live forever. When God gave the manna, he gave only a gift, but when Jesus came, he gave himself. There was no cost to God in sending the manna each day. But he gave his son at great cost. The Jews had to eat the manna every day, but the sinner who trusts Christ once is given eternal life. It is not difficult to see in the manna a picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. The manna was a mysterious thing to the Jews. In fact, the word manna means, what is it? See Exodus 16, verse 15. Jesus was a mystery to those who saw him. The manna came at night from heaven, and Jesus came at this earth when sinners were in moral and spiritual darkness. The manna was small, it was, which would mean his humility. It was round, which would mean his eternality. And it was white, meaning his purity. It was sweet to the taste, Psalms 34, 8. And it met the needs of the people adequately. The manna was given to a rebellious people. It was the gracious gift of God. All they had to do was stoop and pick it up. If they failed to pick it up, they walked on it. The Lord is not far from any sinner. All the sinner has to do is humble himself and take the gift that God offers. Jesus closed this part of his message by referring to his flesh, a word that will be used six more times before the dialogue is concluded. In John verse 51 is a declaration that the Son of God will give himself as a sacrifice, quote, for the life of the world. 
the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is a key doctrine in John's gospel. Jesus would die for the world. John 3.16 and John 6.51. For his sheep, for the nation, and for his friends. Paul made it personal, and so should we. He said in Galatians 2.20, who loved me and gave himself for me. We must not limit the work of Christ on the cross. He is the sacrifice, not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See 1 John 2, verse 2. John 6, verses 52 through 59, the word striving means to fight and quarrel. Being Orthodox Jews, the listeners knew the divine prohibition against eating human flesh or any kind of blood. Here we have another example in John's Gospel of the people misunderstanding a spiritual truth by treating it literally. All Jesus said was, quote, Just as you take food and drink within your body, it becomes a part of you. So you must receive me within your innermost being so that I can give you life. End of the quote. Some interpreters tell us that Jesus was speaking about the Lord's Supper and that we eat his flesh and drink his blood when we partake of the elements at the table, the bread and the cup. I don't believe that Jesus had the communion or Eucharist in mind when he spoke these words. For one thing, why would he discuss the Lord's Supper with a group of disagreeable unbelievers? He had not even shared that truth with his own disciples. Why would he cast this precious pearl before the swine? Second, he made it clear that he was not speaking in literal terms. John 6, verse 63. He was using the human analogy to convey a spiritual truth, just as he did with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Third, Jesus made it plain that his eating and drinking were absolutely essential for eternal life. Eating and drinking is essential for eternal life. But not the the way that they thought, not the way that they received it. He made no exceptions. If then he was speaking about a church ordinance or a sacrament, say, then everybody who has never shared in that would experience who had never shared in that particular experience, talking about the sacrament, talking about communion, they would be spiritually dead and they would be going to hell if they had not partaken of that experience. This would include all of the Old Testament saints, the thief on the cross, and the host of people who have trusted Christ in emergency situations, hospitals, accidents, foxholes, etc., people that have just died and never had an opportunity to experience taking communion. 
So I personally cannot believe that our gracious God has excluded from salvation all who cannot participate in a church ceremony. Another factor is the tense of the Greek verbs in John 6, 50, 51, and 53. It is the aorist tense which signifies a once-for-all action. The communion service is a repeated thing. In fact, it's likely that the early church observed the Lord's Supper daily. See Acts 2, verse 46. It is significant that the word flesh is never used in any of the reports of the Lord's Supper, either in the Gospels or in 1 Corinthians 11, 23-34. The word used is body. If a person holds that our Lord was speaking about the communion service, then he must believe that somehow the two elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine, turn into the very body and blood of Christ. For he said this in John 6:57, So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. How does this quote, miracle, take place. What would be the secret of accomplishing it? Was it not apparent that our Lord's message recorded in the Gospel of John, his messages are filled with symbolism and imagery. To take them literally is to take the same or make the same mistake the people made who first heard them. In verses 60 through 71, our Lord's teaching was not hard to understand, but hard to accept once you understood it. The Jewish religious leaders both misunderstood his words and rejected them. They were offended by what he taught. They stumbled over the fact that he claimed to come down from heaven. They also stumbled over the idea that they had to eat his flesh and drink his blood in order to be saved. But if they stumbled over these two matters, what would they do if they saw him ascend back into heaven? See John 6, verse 62. Jesus explained that his language was figurative and spiritual, not literal. There is no salvation in, quote, flesh. In fact, the New Testament has nothing good to say about the flesh. There's nothing good in it, Romans 7, verse 18. And we must not have confidence in it, Philippians 3, verse 3. How then do we, quote, eat his flesh and drink his blood? Through the word. Jesus said, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And the word was made flesh. John 1, 14. Our Lord said the same thing. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. John 5, 24. The scribes who knew Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 would have understood the concept of receiving God's word into one's inner being. The result of the message was the loss of most of our Lord's disciples. 
They went back to the old life, the old religion, and the old hopeless situation. Jesus Christ is the way, John 14, verse 6. But they would not believe this. There was no surprise to the Lord, or this was no surprise to the Lord, because he knows the hearts of all people. When Jesus asked his 12 apostles if they planned to desert him too, it was Peter who spoke up and declared their faith. Where else could they go? Peter said, Thou hast the words of eternal life. Peter got the message. He knew that Jesus was speaking about the word and not about literal flesh and blood. Peter was one of the several people who declared their belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Let me give some scriptures here for those who are taking notes. John 1, verse 34, verse 49. John 3, verse 18. John 5, verse 25. John 9, verse 35. John 10, verse 36. John 11, verse 4 and verse 27. John 19, verse 7. John 20, verse 31. So the only mistake he made was to bear witness for the entire group. Peter was sure that all of the apostles were believers, which shows how convincing Judas was. Even Peter did not know that Judas was an unbeliever. The preaching of the word of God always leads to a sifting of the hearts of the listeners. God draws sinners to the Savior through the power of truth, his word. Those who reject the word will reject the Savior. Those who receive the word will receive the Savior and experience the new birth and eternal life. Do you feel your need because there is a spiritual hunger within? In closing, are you willing to admit that need, that hunger, that need, and come to the Savior? If you will, He will save you and satisfy you forever. If you never come, you'll never know. You'll only know if you come. He will save you and satisfy you forever.